to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. This week's episode, bro is going to interview Larry Swedro. He's the author of Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. And I'm going to take us shopping at CES. Ooh, exciting. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, I got three things for you, Allison. Number one, the returns over the past 20 years. Now, most of us have heard, especially if you listen to this show, that over the long term, U.S. large-cap stocks have returned 10% a year. That number usually comes from Ibbotson Associates beginning in 1926. However, a recent Barron's article looked at the returns over the past 20 years. You want to take a guess what the S&P 500 returned over the past 20 years? No, I hate guessing at things like okay. this because I just look like a big old idiot. All right, well, I'll tell you, five point five percent. That's disappointing. It is disappointing because obviously because of the two bear markets we had, dot com, mm-hmm. then the Great Recession. So half of the historical average, right? And it really is half the historical average because if you looked at what the stock market returned when you looked at nineteen ninety nine, I remember this because that's when I started writing for the Motley Fool. At that point, U.S. large caps had returned 11% a year. So mm-hmm. if you were doing your retirement plan, right, you're like, oh, well, stocks return 11% a year. So throw it all the numbers in there, calculate, oh, I only need to save this much. Mm-hmm. If you didn't alter that since then, 20 years later, you're coming up short because your portfolio didn't return what you hoped it would. So for me, the main lesson for this is, there's the historical returns, and there's what you're going to actually see. We don't know what the future will look like. There are two. Actually, there's a silver lining to this, and then a not so silver lining. The silver lining is historically, when you've had a 20-year period with significantly below average returns, it's been followed by a 20-year period with very good returns. However, as we'll talk later on in the show with my interview with Larry Swedro, unfortunately, stocks are still highly valued. So today retirement planners should not assume that they're going to get that historical 10%. I year. know. You keep saying that. I know. I know. Anyway, so that's number one. Number two, living dangerously in America. So as of this taping, the partial government shutdown is still in effect, which means you know hundreds of thousands of federal employees either are not working and not getting paid or are working and getting paid. And then there's the estimated 4 million government contractors who are not getting paid. And then there are all the people who have businesses related to the government. For example, the businesses around national parks and all that. Like Those folks are suffering. Um, But some recent stats from an article from CNBC really highlighted that it's not just the government workers. And this article, um, one of the stats is right there in the headline. It's by Emmy Martin. And the headline is, the government shutdown spotlights a bigger issue. 78% of the U.S. workers live paycheck to paycheck. This is stats from a study from CareerBuilder. It's worse for women. 81% live paycheck to paycheck versus 75% men. More than 50% of the respondents save less than $100 a month. And then Martin's article also cited a GoBanking, a GoBank rates survey, which found that 61% of people don't have an emergency fund. And then there's that oft-cited Federal Reserve study that found that 40% of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency. And the lesson here is like that just has to change because you just don't know 
when a period is going to happen, when either A, you're going to have a big ticket expense, or something is going to happen to your income, completely out of your control. And so, if you don't have that, what happens? Well, you have all, I mean, I'm sure you've read these stories of people now having to try to negotiate with their mortgage companies, or their landlords, or their kids' colleges for a way to delay payment. And that's not a position you want to be in. So, if you are someone who does not have an emergency fund, that's got to be like your number one priority. And remind everyone what an emergency fund should be. Three to six months of must-pay expenses. The more you have uh, must-pay expenses, like a mortgage or something like that, or the more you have people relying on your income and your financial stability, the more money you should have set aside in something nice and safe, plain old cash. And then number three, having the money talk. And now this article is actually from November, but I didn't read it until recently. It was in the New York Times by Maria Teresa Hart called Navigating the Financial Side of a Relationship. So she started off with the sets we've always heard that money problems often are a big problem with marriage in marriages. People often fight about money. Fights about money are often more toxic and more long lasting. So she talked about how she has a regular talk with her husband every month. She gets the reminder that pops up on her calendar. And it reads, and this is all caps, hot talk, dollars, dollars, bills, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, the whole article is, is pretty good in terms of, all right, you've got to have the money talk. has to happen on a regular basis. And she has some good guidelines for what to talk about. Some of it is stuff that you would talk about just sort of in the beginning, especially in the beginning of a relationship. But then some other good ground rules. rules. So, for example, talk about your money past. Whenever you start dating someone, you're always talking about your relationship past. You should also talk about what? your money past. Don't really? you talk about your relationship past? No. You don't? You no. Don't, you don't talk about the people you've Rick, dated? Rick, do you do that? Do you? I don't have a relationship past, only the present. <laughs> no, no. Ron doesn't know about your ex-boyfriends? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he knows that they exist, um, that they were a thing in my life, but we don't sit around and ruminate on, Got like, it. oh, this person. I mean, I, one time we, we were doing evasive, <laughs> it was him, he was doing evasive maneuvers in a Trader Joe's, and I didn't know why. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? He was just like zigging and zagging and hiding around things. And he's like, oh, I just saw an ex girlfriend. And um, yeah, that's like that. That's one of the few conversations we had. That was it. That was the end that of the conversation. That is very well. Okay, so you don't have to have that conversation, clearly, because you're happily married. But regardless, everyone should have a conversation about their money. Oh, we history. talk about our money way more than we talk yes. about gotcha. relationships. Okay, so that's something that you do in the beginning. Obviously, you don't need to do about that every month. But a few other good ground rules. First of all, don't withhold information, right? You can't be in a situation where later on you find, in the example she uses, you know, a closet full of Amazon purchases or an online gambling habit. Like that's, you just have to be forthright about all that stuff. But the other ground rule is you have to have, be comfortable saying that. Nobody is perfect about money. Everyone's going to make mistakes. So you have to, during this talk, feel like, okay, I can own up to this and it's not going to be a horrible thing. Um, she also talked about how remembering that all solutions aren't universal. Like different people have different approaches to money. So some people will need to budget and some people won't. And she put it in the context of Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. Mm. So you interviewed Gretchen Rubin back in November of 2017. We aired it on, didn't we air that interview on the show? We did. Yeah. We did. So if you look at that, and the four tendencies are basically 
personality types the way you meet your inner expectations and your outer expectations. So you're an obliger, a questioner, the rebel, and the upholder. Um, and so if I could just imagine, like if you have two people who are rebels, who are married and trying to handle your finances, boy, oh boy, good luck with that one. That'd yeah. be very tough. So yeah. just understanding that what works for you may not work for your spouse. But basically the bottom line is, I just thought it was a great idea to have that monthly money talk, regardless of how you do it. But like, what are you talking about? You're just talking about like, here's what I bought, here's what I... Sort of. So my wife and I used to do something called the Sunday Summit, uh-huh. which wasn't just about money, it was about the week ahead. And then mm-hmm. we transitioned to basically just doing it over email. So every mm-hmm. Monday morning, she sends me an email of what's coming up in the week ahead, and then I reply and say, okay, I can do this, you do that, that type of thing. So it would, the practical things would be a financial update. Where are we? Where are our accounts? Stuff like that. For people like me who like to do calculators and things like that, I would say at least every year you do an update, are we on goal to meet Mm. retirement, to meet college. As people know, I have three kids now on the verge of college, so that's a big thing that comes up. Um, But I also like the idea of anticipating future expenses. If you know where you're going, for example, vacation in summer, are you on track to be able to pay Mm -hmm. for that? Um, and chances are some sort of big expense has come up anyhow, and do you have a plan for paying for that? Those types of things I think are the most important. Uh, obviously, at different times of the year, this time of year now is the time to talk about taxes. You're going to start getting in documents, tax, document, tax documents, either emailed to you or mailed to you. It's a great time to create like an envelope. And you agree, like, okay, when that stuff comes in, where are we going to put all the tax information? So when it time, comes time to do the taxes, we know where to find it. So those types of things. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year, but where do you find that person? That's why when it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day, LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. The number one goal for most investors is retirement. Yet a successful retirement isn't just about growing your portfolio. There are many, many other decisions you have to make related to your benefits, your Social Security, Medicare, your longevity, your family, your health, even your happiness. Fortunately, we have just the right person to help us with these decisions. On the phone is Larry Swedrow, the Director of Research for Buckingham Strategic Wealth, an author or co-author of 15 books, including the recently published Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement, co-written with Kevin Grogan. Larry, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Glad to be with you, Bob. So I'm a big fan of your books. As you know, I would, I would count you among my favorite authors. You write mostly about investing, but with this book, I found it interesting that your first chapter actually isn't about investing. It's about retirement planning beyond the financials, uh, which is really about the emotional side of retirement. So I was curious how you came to that decision, and I was wondering if whether over your decades of being in the business, did you find that a lot of people are not psychologically prepared for retirement? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I set out to write uh, a book that would meet the title, Your, uh, Your Complete Guide. And so uh, you not only have to plan for your financial retirement and make sure you have sufficient assets to accomplish your uh, financial goals, but you also need to plan for a, a successful life in retirement. And what the research uh, on the subject of retirement living uh, has shown is that many people uh, find the great satisfaction in their lives really from their work. Uh, and that comes in two forms. One, that their social connections are tied to their connections at work. Uh, and secondarily, they get their intellectual stimulations from the job. And so when they retire, they lose that, those two very important things. And what we find is that not only does depression become a very common problem, divorces of uh, what are called silver divorces now is the fastest growing part of the population experiencing divorce hmm. uh, with many wives uh, or spouses saying I married you for better or worse but not for lunch uh, <laughs> you know you have to have uh, re reasons to get out of the house uh, if you will and lastly what's maybe the worst of all is the fastest growing suicide rate uh, it was probably shock people is among retirees. Um, and so, uh, I met a friend, uh, or became a friend, Alan Spector wrote a wonderful book, uh, your retirement quest and talked about the need for planning a successful life and a meaningful one in retirement, envisioning what that perfect day would look at and planning it, uh, maybe even practicing it ahead of time. And so I recruited Alan to help me write that first chapter, and we made it the first chapter because it doesn't matter if you're successful with your finances. If you don't get that part right, the rest almost becomes irrelevant. Right. Yeah, I often say that uh, retirement isn't just about spending your money. It's about how you're going to spend your time. And, exactly. and many people, i found, enjoy maybe the first three to six months of retirement and then question why they retired to begin with. Exactly. So it's about finding a purpose. Uh, and I've worked with lots of people. Some of them go on to become, say, candy stripers at a hospital that accomplishes two goals for them. One, it gets them out of the house and keeps them connected socially, interacting with people, and it fills an emotional need for them to feel like they're giving something back. Others go and attend college classes uh, yeah, uh, or it could be I had two uncles who decided to prepare taxes for the elderly and the poor and do it as, you know, giving back to the community. So it doesn't matter exactly what it is. It could be playing bridge or learning a new language. Uh, whatever it is, it's something that you will find pleasure, enjoyment, psychological and intellectual fulfillment from. Great. So that's how you kick off the book. And then you do move into your bread and butter asset allocation. And obviously, the first decision that any investor has to make is how much to put in the stock market and how much to keep out. So, how do you recommend that people go about making that decision? I know that's a big question. Yeah. So, we'll start with sort of three key questions or issues to identify. One is how much um, 
ability do you have to take risk? And while many people think of investment horizon as the one factor, you also have to consider your labor capital or human capital and how it correlates to the risk of stocks. So, for example, I ask people to think of their labor capital in this way. Are you a stock or a bond? Um, by that I mean if you're a tenured professor at Washington University, your income is highly stable. You are not likely to get laid off in 2008. So your labor capital is very bond-like. That means you can hold more equity risk. On the other hand, if you're a computer salesman, a car salesman, a construction worker, someone whose income is more tied to the economic cycle and the stock market as well, well, you're a stock, and therefore you need to hold more uh, more bonds in your portfolio, all else equal. And I want to touch on one other key thing about this ability to take risk. People have to remember the average 65-year-old couple still has a second-to-die life expectancy of about 25 years. That, and that means half the time one of the two of you uh, will live longer. So you really need and should be planning for 30 years. So while your horizon certainly is getting shorter as you age, even 65-year-olds have a pretty long horizon, and you don't want to get too conservative. So that's the first issue you need to address. Uh, the second is the willingness to take risks how much stomach acid you're, you can absorb without hitting the panic uh, sell button. Uh, and I tell people you shouldn't even take that much risk because life's too short not to enjoy it. So you want to take what I call the sleep well test. What dollar amount of your portfolio would you be willing to lose and still say you're not going to worry, you'll enjoy your life, convert that into a percentage, uh, and then that can help you tell you how much equity risk you can be taking as a maximum, and we give a table in the book to help. And lastly, the question is need to take risk. Um, someone who has $10 million and spends, say, $200,000 a year, that's a 2% withdrawal rate. They have no need to take risk, and all else equal probably should be sitting with a very low equity allocation. On the other hand, if you have a high spending need, you may need to hold more equities. So one of the things we work closely with people on is helping them, number one, avoiding converting uh, what are nice to have or desires into needs. The more you need, the more equity risk you are going to have to take, and the more risk your portfolio will blow up uh, in a bear market and cause you maybe to panic and sell. And the other is to recognize at what point do you have enough uh, because once you have enough, the good things in life are either free or cheap. Uh, I can't think of anything that I find more joy of than going out and hitting a tennis ball with my grandson or reading books to my other grandkids, uh, taking a nice walk in the park with my wife. The average American is no more happier with $75,000 a year of income than someone who has two, three, or four times that amount. So. You really want to make sure you're not converting uh, desires into needs. Um, once, and a good rule of thumb today is if you have 30 or uh, times or so the amount of spending requirement, 
you can get by with a very low equity allocation and have almost no risk of running out of money. There are a couple other ways that people often think about factoring other things into their asset allocation. You mentioned human capital. Some people, including Vanguard founder John Bogle, suggest that you should consider Social Security as a big fat holding in bonds and factor that into your asset allocation. What's your take on that? Well, he's got the right idea, but in my opinion, uh, it's the wrong approach. It's way too complicated. That means you've got to, in effect, convert your Social Security into an annuity and that has a present value of X. And with interest rates changing, that's always going to change. I think there's a much simpler way. What you do is to say the following. I need, say, 70000 a year in spending. Uh, I'm going to get 30000 a year in current dollars in Social Security. I need 40000 And then you build an asset allocation based on that lower number. And if you have any other pensions uh, as well, you could take that into account. So, yes, it is just like a safe bond, uh, but the easy way to deal with it is to simply reduce the, your need to take risk by the amount of your Social Security. Got it. So, uh, since we're on the topic of Social Security, let's talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get back to asset allocation. But um, you devote a whole chapter to it in the uh, book, it's a good chapter, and it emphasizes again to me that it's really pretty complicated, especially if you are or ever were married. It seems to me, many years ago, it used to be the strategy was take it as soon as you can. Then more, more and more people started saying, no, you should delay it as much as you can. But the real answer, I think, is it does depend on your circumstances, and you, and you probably need some professional help to make that decision. Well, let me uh, say this. First, the people at Social Security are fairly knowledgeable. We have found that they generally get it right, so more than half the time, but not always. So a professional help can uh, be of assistance. We have experts in our firm that are experts specifically on Social Security, so we will sit down with our clients and walk them through. So, one, you definitely do need to consider uh, the spouse uh, and, and their Social Security benefits because you can capture spousal benefits, they're called, and that should be a consideration. But the general rule should be this. Uh, assuming you uh, have good health, so your average life expectancy matches the average American, uh, then everybody who can afford to delay taking Social Security should do so, um, with the one exception possibly being this issue of taking spousal benefits early. Uh, but the reason you want to do that is Social Security is actuarially neutral. Uh, and therefore, the longer you delay, you're actually picking up 8% more a year in uh, Social Security benefits. So if you move from 62 to 70, that's 64%. Uh, in effect, what you're doing is buying longevity insurance uh, against the risk of living longer. Uh, and that's the highest risk-free rate of return you're ever going to get. And therefore, you're generally far better off uh, living off your taxable 
investments, drawing them down, taking, if need be, minimum RMDs out of your IRA, if need be, uh, and you will find when you run what's called a Monte Carlo simulation, uh, the odds of running out of money are the lowest when you do what by delaying Social Security. Uh, and that's how we help people figure out the answer. You can simply run a Monte Carlo analysis, and it'll, and it will tell you what the right answer is. But the, again, you know, people buy longevity insurance and annuities. This is one where you don't have to pay any insurance company a premium to buy that insurance and cover their origination costs and their commissions to their salespeople, etc. And so you're getting that longevity insurance for free. And so unless your health is not good, you maybe you have cancer or family history, whatever. I really would urge people to delay their Social Security as long as possible as a good general rule. Yeah, and in, in your book, you do also highlight another tool that people can consider, which is MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com, which was created by Larry Kotlikoff, uh, an economics professor at Boston University, and also a write-in candidate for president in 2016. I don't know if you knew that or not. but uh, um, Yeah, there are some good tools available. A friend of mine, Professor Bill Rickenstein, also has a website and a tool that he keeps up to date as the rules change. Uh, and so there are tools available for people if you're not working with a good financial advisor who is also an expert in this area. Since you brought up annuities, let's move on to that topic. Uh, for, for many people, annuities uh, have a bad rap, and in many re- for many good reasons, in terms of their costs and the way they're often sold and not bought. But the type of annuity that you are speaking about, and the type of annuity that I have recommended in the past, let's start with one of them, and that is the single premium income annuity. It's basically the plain vanilla annuity. You hand over a lump sum, and then the insurance company is going to send you a check for the rest of your life. You think that's actually something worth considering, correct? Yeah, that's the only kind of annuity you want to buy. You want to avoid basically all variable annuities. Those are products, as you said, are meant to be sold because they generate big commissions typically, uh, and they should be avoided. There's no reason virtually to have investments inside annuities. Uh, So you buy annuities for longevity insurance, and here's why um, I don't recommend buying those SPIAs when they're immediate annuities or immediate payout annuities. I recommend that investors consider almost always what are called deferred payout annuities, which are newer products. Uh, And the way to think about that, Bob, is the following. We want to buy insurance for things that we can't budget for. So we don't budget, for example, um, uh, sorry, we do budget for an oil change, but we don't budget for getting into a big car accident. So we buy auto insurance for liability protection and physical damage to the car, but we don't buy protection against uh, that oil change. We budget for it. So what you should be doing when thinking about annuities is you budget for the expected and you buy insurance for the unexpected. So uh, if you're 65 years old, uh, you think your average expectancy is, say, 20 years, you should be budgeting to living to age 85, building up a portfolio to allow you to do that. 
You want to buy insurance against living longer than expected, so therefore you would buy an annuity that maybe would start paying out at age 85. That allows you to keep the rest of the money and invest it. You can buy an annuity uh, uh, with a deferment for a much smaller percentage of your portfolio than you could if you bought an immediate annuity. So that's the way we think about it. So, uh, uh, and uh, it makes the most sense to me. You're all, again, you want to buy insurance for the unexpected, not the expected. And just to sum up some of the things you mentioned in the book, the, the age at which people should consider buying these is generally between 65 and 70, as I understand it? I, I would say that it's a higher number, and the reason is this. Insurance companies are in the business to make money. They have costs of origination uh, as well uh, as the costs of the expected payouts. Uh, and they want to generate a profit on top of that, which they're entitled to. So you have to overcome those costs uh, that are built into the products. So when you're age, uh, say, 35 or 40 or even 50, the what are called mortality credits that you get uh, as a benefit in them from the people who uh, die early and never collect, they're very small because, say, an average 30-year-old, very few of them die, so there's very little in the way of mortality credits. Uh, and you can earn higher rate of returns by replicating uh, investments, say, build a portfolio of CDs, uh, out for the next 10 years and do better because you don't have those costs. So generally, I would tell people you want to start to buy annuities in kind of your mid-70s, but you could buy a deferred annuity at any point in time as long as you start it you know, at a later period, maybe age 80 or 85. Got it. You know, one of the topics you did touch on in the book a few times was basically uh, our mental health and our mental capacity to manage money later in life. And to me, that's another benefit of these annuities in the sense that you basically will have the money coming in regardless, and you, you can't make as many mistakes as you might make if you had more liquid assets. I completely agree. That's one uh, that is a benefit of having uh, an annuity. Uh, but we do have a whole chapter on the issues of cognitive decline and elder abuse, and it's especially important for women who tend to be widowed uh, or divorced, living alone, single, and they live longer than men. They are also more targeted by crooks and are subject to, you know, all kinds of uh, financial shenanigans, and therefore you really need to have uh, uh, documents that are called uh, powers of durable powers of attorney for health and financial matters, not just financial, but health, and giving trusted family members the ability to take control of your finances by, for example, requiring you to go to a doctor and pass a cognitive test. Because when we do get cognitive decline, many people will fight it and resist it and don't want to lose control and fear that. So you want to make sure you're planning for that because if you live long enough, 
the average person, 85 or older, probably more than half the population will experience cognitive decline. So we have a whole chapter. I got help from an expert who was a nurse and an elder care attorney uh, and to help write this chapter on all the issues related to uh, getting older. Okay. Let's get back to uh, portfolio management. And you recommend a fairly diversified portfolio. And I'm going to ask you about a few asset types that um, have struggled over the last few years Mm -hmm. and see what you think to convince those of us who have been holding these assets to stick with them. And let's start with international stocks. I'd mentioned John Bogle er earlier. He is someone who has often said he's not sure it's necessary. What's your take on international investing, especially now that we've gone through five to seven years of them underperforming U.S. stocks? Yeah, well, my first comment, while I have the greatest respect for John Bogle, he may be the only financial economist in the whole world who would say you should own a market-like portfolio of, in terms of exposure to international stocks and emerging market stocks. Uh, so I'll I'll deal with that. If John Bogle lived in Japan, uh, I, he might have said the same thing because he's got a I think a home country bias. And look at Japanese investors who would not have invested internationally over the last thirty years. Japan uh, has seen their stock market today is about half the value it was in 1990. That could be the U.S. So that's a risk you want to diversify. So I'll deal with that. But to answer your question specifically, one of the biggest mistakes I have found investors make, and even highly sophisticated institutional investors make, is that they fail to understand this point. Most of them think that periods of three years are long enough to judge performance. That's a long time. Five years is a really long time, and 10 years is an eternity. Financial economists know that when it comes to risky assets, 10 years can be nothing more than noise. So I'll ask you this question to prove my point. We've now had three periods of at least 13 years in the U.S. So this is getting also to John Bogle's point or statement, where the U.S. stock market has underperformed totally riskless uh, treasury bills for at least 13 years. 1929 through 43, that's 15 years. 1969 through 82 is 14 years. And more recently, 2000 to 2012, 13 years. So the, you, I would hope that investors who live through those periods would not have given up on the concept that stocks would outperform riskless treasury bills. Obviously, over the 90 years or so we have data, stocks have outperformed T-bills by about 7%. We go through these long periods, whether it's international stocks, emerging market stocks, value stocks, small stocks, they all go through long periods. And specifically on international, I'll give you one data set. Bob, so from 2003 through 07, just before the period of the last decade, the S&P had a good run. It was up 83%, I believe. 
The EFI index did roughly double that at about 161%. What do you think emerging markets did? They were up more than about five times the S&P, and the DFA Emerging Market Value Fund, which I happen to be an investor in, was up 545%. Now, of course, investors forget that because they're subject to this recency bias. The only way you get those great returns is to be there for the long haul if, and don't make this mistake of a home country bias either. Investors all over the world believe that not only that their country is safer, but it's going to provide higher returns, which of course makes no sense. If it's safer, it should provide lower expected returns, right? Right. You had mentioned by the EFI, so just so people know, the EFI is the Europe, Australia, Asia, and Far East Index, the most commonly used non-U.S. stock index. It's basically the developed markets ex-U.S. Right, and ex-Canada as well. And ex-Canada, right. right. Correct. Um, let's move on to the fixed income side of the portfolio, and an asset that does not have as long of a history, but that I think you do believe belongs in most retirees' portfolios, at least, and that is TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Um, those are also an asset class that haven't done, hasn't done particularly well over the last few years. What's the role of those in a portfolio, especially for someone who's going to look at them today at a typical TIPS fund and see that they haven't provided much return? Well, uh, let's think about it this way. Uh, TIPS are basically a vehicle that gives you insurance against unexpected inflation. Uh, the expected inflation rate is built into nominal bonds uh, that don't provide inflation protection. So, uh, Bob, when you buy life insurance and you don't die, are you unhappy that you bought the insurance and think it was a mistake? No, absolutely not. Of course not. You don't confuse strategy with outcome. The problem with many people when it comes to investing is they think a good outcome was based on a good strategy, uh, when it might be luck, and they think a bad outcome had to be because of a bad strategy when it might just be bad luck. You shouldn't confuse the two. We have had a period of obviously well below expected inflation. I'm sure you can recall many gurus were predicting outsized inflation because of the Federal Reserve's very easy monetary policy, quantitative easing, zero interest rates, massive federal budget deficits. You had commercials you know, recommending buying gold because inflation was going to run through the roof. Well, we didn't get that one showing you how much forecasts are worth, which is nothing. <laughs> uh, but um, when you didn't get the expected inflation, you bought the insurance, you didn't collect on it, just like you shouldn't collect, uh, sorry, uh, shouldn't feel that you made a bad decision when you bought life insurance and you shouldn't die. You bought the protection, you got lucky and you didn't need it, and you should be thankful uh, that that happened because an alternate universe might have shown up. Mm -hmm. So retirees are often the most exposed to inflation because they no longer have wages rising with uh, uh, inflation, and they may not have uh, a lot of equities in the portfolio which tend to hold up over the long term to inflation. So they should probably consider tips more. I certainly recommend people consider tips. 
uh, and for at least some portion of their portfolio. Um, that's uh, and the alternatives should be compared to the return that you can get either from municipal bonds uh, of similar maturity, uh, or if it's in a tax advantage account, I would compare it to FDIC insured CDs, and then you can see the difference in returns. What's the break-even inflation rate? Uh, and decide which is better. But I'll give you a simple example right now, uh, so this might help people in how they think about it. If we look at the 10-year Treasury, it's yielding about 2.7%. A 10-year TIPS is yielding 0.9%. So if inflation is only 1.8%, you're better off in TIPS. I'd say that's very cheap uh, insurance because the expected inflation rate by most economists over the longer term, is in excess of 2%. Uh, so that's one way for people to think about the problem. If and you're not going to invest in, in, in uh, treasuries, then you could look at what a CD rate would yield to or a municipal bond and do the same break-even. Got it. Uh, let's move on to how investing affects retirement. In the end, when you're, when you're looking at your retirement plan, especially when you're still working and saving and trying to figure out whether you are saving enough, one of the quandaries is you have to put in, you have to have some sort of assumption about how much your portfolio is going to return. However, it's very difficult to predict the future. Um, So how do you go about that and what are you suggesting that people should assume that they'll get from their portfolios over the next decade or two? Well, uh, one of the worst mistakes that people make, Bob, is that they think of expected returns in what I would call a deterministic way. Um, so if they were to say, uh, as today most financial economists expect a return of about 7% or so uh, for U.S. equities, uh, you know, maybe more like uh, nine percent for developed markets and maybe ten or eleven for emerging because their valuations are much lower but let's stick with the uh, u.s number of seven and then they think of it i'm going to get seven and worse yet they think of it i'm going to get seven like every year the only right way to think about that expected return is to think of it like uh, a bell curve so where the mean would be seven percent And if you had thousands of alternative universes that might show up, to use a Star Trek term, half of them will have returns of more than 7%, half will be less, maybe 40% will be more than 8%, and 20% more than 9%, and 5% more than 10%, and you have the same on the downside. So if you get lucky and it's 1980, the next 20 years you earn 18%, you're in that far right tail, And if you're unlucky and it's 2,000, the next 10 years you have negative returns and you underperform T-bills by 4% a year, you're in that left tail. So you have to think about it as uh, you are subject to any one of these wide dispersions of returns, which is why we run what are called Monte Carlo simulations, that you put in assumptions about expected returns, and I'll come back to that in a second, and then the Monte Carlo simulation spits out 3,000 scenarios. 
and allows you to determine what's the right asset allocation that gives you the best chance of not running out of money, even when those left tail risks show up. All right, let's come back quickly to how do we forecast. The best uh, uh, estimate of expected bond returns is current yields. So today, let's use a five-year treasury as a reasonable proxy. That's today about 2.5%, well below the historical average. The best estimates we have, and they're not great ones, but they're the best we have of future stock returns, is to take the earnings yield or the inverse of the P.E. Uh, a good, or as good as any is to take the Schiller Cape 10 or the cyclically adjusted P ratio. Your listeners can go online and look that up. Today, that's about 28. If we were to invert that, obviously at 25, you invert that, you'd get 4%. So it's going to be a bit less. So let's just round it to 4% for our purposes. Add in expected inflation of 2, 2 and a quarter. You should be putting in a number maybe in the area of 6.5 or something like that for U.S. stock returns. So investors have a problem. In the introduction of my book, I talk about the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse. Expected equity returns are now a lot lower than historically. Expected bond returns are a lot lower. Uh, historically, a 60-40 portfolio has gotten about 8% over the last 35 years. Uh, and today, it might be expected to get about 5 uh, Combine that with longer living. Uh, much longer lifespan, so we have to make the money last longer, and increasing risk of needing long-term care, which can chew up large amounts of money. And then even a fifth horseman, if we don't do something quickly about Social Security's underfunding, in 2032, it's estimated, Social Security will only be able to pay out 75%. So you have to take that into an account as well, and figuring out how much assets. Good rule of thumb, uh, based upon those estimates I just walked through, if you, you should try to have 30 times the amount of spending you think you will need after you consider your Social Security and other pensions. So if you needed 30000 a year after you consider Social Security, then you should multiply that by 30, and that means you need 900000 and that should be kind of your goal. That's based on running thousands of Monte Carlos. You come up with uh, you know, the idea. So the old 4% rule, which was a multiple of 25, no longer holds because expected returns, one, are now lower, and you're expected to live longer, and you have here the risk of uh, long-term care as well. Got it. So let's wrap up with a final question. So you're a few years beyond the average retirement age in America, yet you're still working. So what does retirement look like for Larry Swedrow? Uh, do you think you'll ever retire? <laughs> well, I, I consult with lots of high net worth people selling businesses, and they want to retire, and they talk about going to the golf course. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you want to make sure you don't retire from life. Uh, the day I feel I'm going to work will be the day I retire. I love what I do. I get to help people. Uh, I enjoy reading and doing the research and writing. Uh, and uh, so 
I'm 67 now. I've committed to my firm. I'll hang around at least till 72 full time. And after that, we'll see how health and family life goes. But I would imagine even at that point, I'd probably still want to continue writing, maybe working part time at that point for a few more years. Got it. Well, as one of your fans, I'm glad to hear that I could expect to read some stuff for you for many years to come. So again, your new book is called Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement, written by Kevin Grogan and our guest, Larry Swedrow. Larry, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Electronics show, aka CES, kicked off last week. It's a massive trade show in Vegas where companies show off their latest innovations in consumer tech. Some of it is amazing, some of it is weird. CNN described it best as like wandering through 2.7 million square feet of a SkyMall catalog. <laughs> so, how much does living in the future cost? We'll see if you too can guess. Rick, are you ready to? Because I'm going to tell you about some of the hottest items on display at CES. And you're going to guess how much it costs. Oh, We're going to do closest without getting over. All right, are we ready? Ready. First up, Somnox, a pillow that mimics human breathing, so you cuddle with it at night and sleep better. It kind of looks like a great big upholstered lima bean. Holy cow. All right, how much would you pay for that? How much would I? And Rick, you are not allowed <laughs> to just say $1 for everything. <laughs> I would pay... $200, but not to put it on my bed. I would put it on somebody else's without telling them and just see how long it takes them to notice that there's somebody breathing. <laughs> there's a big breathing lima bean. Uh, I'm going to say $299. All right. Well, it's $549. Jeez yeah. Louise. People love it. The Somnics can also play meditations, lullabies, audiobooks, or white noise if a heartbeat and breathing isn't for you. Uh, there is on the website, there's this photo. It's most people like hugging it. Like I like to actually hug a blanket when I sleep so I can get wanting to hug something. But on the website, there's this photo of a woman cradling it like it's a baby and looking at it lovingly. <laughs> <laughs> so I can get the idea of wanting to hold something, but cradling it, maybe not so much. Um, it made Tom's Guide's best of list what? for robots. <laughs> so not messing around. If you want Come to sleep on, with, that's not a robot. If you want to sleep with a robot, this is a great this choice. This is the robot to sleep with. <laughs> that is not a robot. I was as a kid, I had a pillow. <laughs> I that, slept with a robot. I know what that's like. No, I had a pillow with a little cord coming out. I could plug it into my Walkman, and I did. That that was like how is that a robot? That's not a by robot. A, by a teddy it just has a speaker spin. in it. I mean, come yeah. on. Um, I remember I had a, a stuffed animal that had a little heart in it, and when you would hug it, its heart would go boom, 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 boom. I remember those. Was really, yeah, that's pretty freaky too. I loved I loved that little bear. I wasn't li big. Okay, whatever. I loved <laughs> that bear. Okay, rocking bed. Yes, it's a whole bed that rocks you to sleep. The inventor came up with the idea when he slept like a rock on a cruise. How much would you pay for a king-size rocking bed, oh, you grown men? <laughs> God. All right, I'm going to say like $3,000. Yeah, I would not pay $5,000. It is... <laughs> $3,450. Whoa! Now, that is just for the bed. You still have to supply the mattress and the frame. Oh, okay. Um, from what I can tell in the videos, it kind of shifts just horizontally, about, a I don't know, less than a foot. Um, so, that's, I don't know. There you go. Could be good, I guess. I don't know. I do like falling asleep in cars. That's sort of similar. You get seasick in the comfort of your own home. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The TV everyone flipped out about is LG's rollable TV. 
because apparently the trend is moving towards hiding your TV, whether it's pretending it's a picture on the wall or, in LG's case, the TV kind of rolls up like a piece of paper、What? into a box.、Hmm. Rick, saw, Rick saw videos. I saw videos that I didn't see price tags. Well, go for it. Guess. Well, let me ask you this what's the size of the TV? I don't know. Big enough for you, old man. I don't know. <laughs> like this big. <laughs> It's really big. It's, it's like really big. 70 some inches or something like that. Okay.、Like、well, you want to guess first or you want me to guess first? I'm going to guess $3,000. I'm going to go with Rick's $5,000. So the cost is actually TBD, but experts are suggesting it's going to be upwards of $8,000. <laughs> I'm not winning this game. <laughs> no,、nah, it's okay. All right. The Breadbot. It's a bread vending Rube Goldberg machine that mixes and bakes the loaf right there before your eyes. And this is super big. But it starts like from dough, needs it, proves it, and it really is like a little Rube Goldberg machine. And then, boom, you I'll go say, open、I'll、the door and pull out your loaf. I'll say $500. Oh, this is something a supermarket would buy, by the way. This is like window commercial grade. This is like the taffy machine in the candy store. This is like a commercial、oh. grade. So $500 is too low. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it makes 10 loaves per hour. I'm going to go with $5,000 again. I'll go $8,000 this time. Oh, you guys. It's $100,000 for a five year lease. <laughs> I win. <laughs> oh. All right, here's one for Rick. How about a smartwatch for musicians? The Soundbrenner Core is a smartwatch with a light and vibrating metronome, decibel meter, and a magnetic contact tuner, which, for our listeners who don't know, you place it right on the string and then it tells whether it's tuned or not based on the vibrations. So, how much? I got to think that that's going to be a couple hundred dollars,、um, but it's, a, it's not going to succeed. Like everything it does, the Apple Watch already does. Why would you buy and spend money on this? I've seen it before. It seems to me a crazy idea because. Oh, you actually have seen this tuner before? Yeah, I've seen, yeah. I've seen the thing. It doesn't strike me as a very unique item. Yeah. What did you say? 200, did you say? I'm going to say 500. It's $229. Oh, the musician wins.、One. The musician wins. It's described by CNET as something Tony Stark would have designed if he played guitar、mm. and didn't、uh, know about the Apple Watch. <laughs>、uh, so there you go. That's what I got. So, as you can see, it's pretty expensive to live in the future. But well, I better start we're、saving. all rocking to sleep with our lima beans, and it's all going to be wonderful. <laughs> I need more items. I was making a comeback. You were. Sorry. Too late. Fourth quarter, buddy. <laughs> all right. So that's the show. It's edited metronomically. Don't think that's a word, but it was it a suggestion,、now. so I'm going with it. Show is edited metronomically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. We have a mailbag episode coming up, don't we? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>、oh, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.